I, I saw it, like, flying over the fortress. I was like, what? So you, you had a moment of going, wait, did Google purchase Finland? <laughs> <laughs> Do Google own the, the Finnish military now? Is that what's happened? <laughs> Myself and Bill have been discussing off-air for, like, the last 20 minutes to half an hour about the next item of follow-up. I was full sure I was correct in my viewpoint on this item of follow-up. And it turns out I'm not. And I want to thank Bill for enlightening me. <laughs> so, just so the last 20 You're minutes... You're making me sound like a jerk here. <laughs> no, no, you didn't say it in a jerky way. You just kind of went, no, Edgar, you're wrong. And I learned something. No, no I great. didn't. I asked, I asked, why would that be the case? I didn't tell you you're wrong. I asked a question. <laughs> you did. And it turns out I was very wrong. <laughs> but in any case, in order to not make the last 20 minutes to half an hour be a total waste, I feel like we should tell the listeners what we were talking about. So what it was, was on the show notes, or on the on the plan for this episode, uh, there was one segment that was just, in quotation marks, that green and blue dot. So I asked Edgar, what was this about? And it was about one line in one Voyager episode that made me so angry that I stopped watching Voyager that night and just was like, nah, I'm done. And it was from the episode where the Doctor has a holographic girlfriend. Uh, I think it's in the middle of season two, as far as I know. I'll For put anyone it in. who hasn't watched Voyager, that's not weird because the Doctor is also a hologram. That's true. The Doctor's a hologram. So this was a great moment for the Doctor because he, like, he's being a hologram. He's kind of lonely, you know? So he, he gets on really well with his this girlfriend. He takes her on a date to the Holosuite. And the Holosuite is done out uh, like Mars. In the future, so you see a colony in the background, and it's like sunset, and they're on they're on a Martian cliff, sitting in a fifty seven Chevy, which is hilarious um, to say the least. Uh, and at one point, the doctor looks up to the sky and goes, "Do you see that pale green and blue dot? That's Earth." And that made me really angry, and I closed my screen. And so I complained about this for twenty minutes to Bill, and then Bill was like. Don't think so, man. Okay, well, first of all, line out why that annoyed you. Okay, so yeah, it annoyed me because I was of the opinion that from Mars, from an observer on Mars, one could not make out colours of another planet. They would simply be too far away. And so Bill thought this was uh, suspect, and so we did a bit of Googling. Turns out, apparently, you can see a reddish colour, the reddish colour of Mars from Earth. So it stands to reason that you might be able to see colours, the Earth colours, from Mars. Which now, I had I'm, no idea about. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually defend you a bit here. Okay. Because there, there's, a, there's a couple of different ways to interpret this. You might inadvertently be right, and that's something about Mars's atmosphere or magnetic field or whatever makes it more difficult to see the colours. That's, that's possible. Okay, yeah, local environments could make it difficult to see colours, yeah. Potentially. And you said that he said that green and blue dot. I don't think you'd be able to make out like two distinct colours at that kind of distance. And I don't even know if it would really look green and blue. I mean, it would probably look kind of brown from you know deserts and stuff as well. It would be mostly blue, I suspect. Yeah, I didn't pay that much attention to correctly quote the doctor. So he could have said that greenish blue dot. Hmm. Or he may have said that green and blue dot. To be honest, at the time, I didn't think this would play an important role in this discussion. <laughs> and the other thing is that they weren't on Mars. They were on the holodeck. So it could have been some kind of program or setting designed to enhance 
things like that, make it more spectacular. Or maybe the Doctor just kind of up that parameter to make his date kind of more impressive. Yeah, that that is that is very true. That's always the case. Um, I suppose just the hard world builder in me took it literally mm. and was like, mm, that's not right, Doctor. But also then, look, looking at from that point of view, that it's actually the holodeck, then there's nothing impressive about that to show your date. It's like, oh, look, there is a, an imaginary picture of Earth. <laughs> like it's, oh, what does, yeah. she, what does she care? <laughs> That's a very good point. And like this hologram, oh, just to be clear, I, I think this hologram was, there was some casualty aboard Voyager and they had to upload that person's consciousness into a hologram. So that the hologram was a person before and not an um, someone from the Alpha Quadrant. So one of the Delta Quadrant aliens. So for her, it would have been really good to see an, an accurate depiction of what the um, the solar system was like, mm. uh, which is also another very, very, very valid point. But I feel kind of bad now because, like, I like to Wait, pride myself. They can, they can do that, and they can they have mind uploading in Star Trek. They have well in that instance, they do. Yeah. Huh? Why? I feel like you've a point to make here. No, that's just like that's a game changer. That is like such a, a fundamentally huge technology to have that that should change everything. <laughs> Why like don't Starfleet officers have like a weekly schedule where they make a new backup of their brain? Well, that's a good point. Or hold on, better still. Why just have no Starfleet officers? Okay, so bear with me here for a second. So the, the doctor uh, on Voyager, yeah? Mm-hmm. He exists in a tangible form. Like you can interact with him. He exists like matter when he's in an area that has hollow emitters. Yeah, okay? he's yeah. a sologram. He's a sologram, exactly, yeah. So why don't they make all starships, like, cover them with holographic emitters, right? So every area can support solograms, okay. and then just upload the minds of the most brilliant Star Trek officers into the ships, and let the holograms go out and explore. You know, no loss of life if something bad happens. You know, the humans can all sit back in their utopia and be all happy with themselves, you know? If they, yeah, well, what, what would save space there is if they didn't need to actually build habitable ships with internal spaces at all, because it's all just uploaded mines and, and, like, you don't need food and you don't need transporters and stuff, and all you need to do would be transport solid, transport the hollow emitters. That's true, that's for surface true. missions. Or to be fair, actually, to make it even easier... Why not just cut out everything and just have computers do it? Well, yeah, that's that's if it's an uploaded mind, then it's a computer, essentially. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Do they um, have artificial intelligence in Star Trek? I don't think they do. Data. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah, of course they do, yeah, yeah. But but it's it's a small technology, it's not a widespread technology, because he was, like, built by kind of a, a crazy kind of rogue fringe scientist, wasn't Yeah, there, there was Data and there was his brother, Lore. Um, yeah, and wasn't I, there a third? Oh. Didn't they have a third, a third brother? I don't know. Did he appear in some movies? Because I haven't seen the movies. Maybe it is from a movie. I'm not sure. I thought I thought there was a third one, but maybe not. I don't remember there being a third one, but... um, Huh. Yeah, for some reason I had it in my head that there was... Oh yeah, there's another one called B4. Feck off. Do you have a, uh, a brief thing of his story there? Uh, yeah, no, this, I'm just reading this off the off Memory Alpha. He, oh, he was one of three failed prototypes... And his brain wasn't as as um, sophisticated. He appears in Nemesis, I think. Oh, okay. That's the that's the film, isn't it? There's, that's there's a that's film. the last Next Generation film, yeah. Yeah, okay. So then I, I that's why I don't know about yeah. him. I've only ever watched the series. 
But yeah, it's it's cool because like there's like two ro- robots in like the entire Star Trek universe. Mm-hmm. And then it's funny because Star Wars is like robot-tastic. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's robots everywhere. And it just seems like, okay, <laughs> why? How come Star Trek hasn't got any robots? I like that there's no robots because it brings up the whole thing about like slavery and things like that. Because you know, with some of the robots in Star Wars, they're kind of slaves. Completely, yes. They're they're sentient beings that are owned. Yeah, that are owned, exactly. So uh, I think it's kind of cool that Star Trek sidesteps that question of is it right to own a robot if that robot is sentient mm-hmm. um, or coming close to sentience and all that. It um, Actually, makes that, everything cleaner. That was a stupid question for me to ask about AI because obviously the Doctor's an AI as well. So yeah, they obviously do have AI. Yeah. So what I'm saying is Star Trek is awful like on a humanitarian point of view because they could they could just make you know backups of everyone's minds and no one would have to die and they could send like solograms on away missions and to explore the galaxy and stuff and they don't and and they don't because god damn it we need to have real people when we watch television um do you know what a couple couple points right have you ever like thought about the fact that the federation are kind of like a friendly borg I have never thought about that. Yeah, you know the way the Borg go around assimilating cultures? Yeah. You know the way the Federation kind of go around assimilating cultures? Except in a much more friendly and civilized way. Not forcibly. But, yeah, but not forcibly. Yeah, that's what I mean. Sorry, that's what I meant by friendly. Like, they, they do it nicely with, like, diplomacy and, and what you call it. It's mutually beneficial and things like that. But, like, one could argue that it that there's a yin-yang thing going on there, which I think is really cool. I guess. You don't sound convinced, no? I mean, that's like... It's like comparing democracy to, like, feudalism. Because you have to pay taxes in both. I mean, it's, you know... One, you're empowered and you have a say in things. And in the other, you still pay taxes, but you don't have a say in things. Okay, yeah. Like, obviously there's minutia going on there that I'm not accounting for. But in a sort of TLDR of things, I, like, I can imagine the writer sat down and went, oh, wouldn't it be great if the Borg were, like, like extremist federation people that had the principles of, like, you know, banding together except taking to a twisted extreme? I suppose because it is kind of about unity or whatever. Yeah, I, I like. I think they thought about this when they're writing it. Yeah, that's um, an interesting point. I always found that really cool. And we will add your diversity to our own. I always thought that was a cool line. The Borg are just cool. Yeah, they're great. Like so much better than than Voyager villains. So far, the Voyager villains are just like real, bleh. like the Kazon. You're like, what? Who are you? What? What is? You just seem like you're. Uh, like a savage race that are just angry all the time and incapable of making correct decisions. It's like, God damn it. So they're Delta Quadrant Klingons except stupid. They're Delta <laughs> Except, yes, you're, de- you're dead right. I really like Klingons, man. Don't be hating on the Klingons. Yeah, except stupid. I'm not saying Klingons are stupid. I'm saying that these guys are like Klingons, but if Klingons are stupid. The other thing I was going to say, Bill, is the Doctor, right? Mm-hmm. I think I remember you saying that you like him as a character. No, that was Julian Bashir I was talking about. Oh. Oh, so is Julian Bashir, is Julian Bashir your uh, favourite Doctor? I, I think that's what I said. Oh, okay. Having watched, having finished Deep Space Nine, I don't see why 
why Bashir is your favourite doctor. Well, bear in mind, I watched this when it came out when I was like nine. So Oh, you're so cool. You're such a nerd. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> when I was when I was when I was nine, I was out like playing like football with, with the lads. <laughs> like I didn't discover nerd culture until like way into my teens. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, what what makes Bashir good in your mind? My answer is to do with spoilers for the end of the seasons, uh, end of the series. So okay, I will bleep them out. Can you tell me? Okay, well I just I remember one episode where it's revealed. The I just thought that I was really knew cool. you were going to say that. All right, so that is that your sole premise for Bashir being well, that's, cool? That's the only thing I remember about him. <laughs> right. Also, the actor is pretty cool, as far as I can recall. Uh, he's the dude in Game of Thrones as well. He plays, um, is it, oh, the, the the King of Dorne? What's his face? I can't remember. But he plays the King of Dorne in Game of Thrones. Yeah, he he, he yeah, you're right. He plays Dorne Martell. That's the one. There you go. Yeah. So it's kind of cool seeing him in Game of Thrones. Uh, but in any case, so I, I, I'm I, sorry, Bill. I thought that you thought the Doctor from Voyager was your favourite Doctor. I don't doctor. think that's what I said. Maybe it was, but I don't think so. But what I was going to say regardless was that I am really beginning to like the Doctor. Really? I think he's a very cool character. Okay. He's like a slightly sillier McCoy. Okay. From the original series. He's kind of like a bit of a hard ass. You know, he's kind of grumpy. He doesn't mm-hmm. take nonsense, but then he can have these moments of, like, flamboyance where he's just hilarious, like, unintentionally hilarious. Almost like an old version of Sheldon Cooper from The Big Bang Theory. You're not selling them to me. <laughs> right, let's do this Big Bang Theory. Where do we stand on The Big Bang Theory? It's... It's, it's absolute trash. What what makes it absolute trash? It, like, there's... It's just... There's nothing... I, there's nothing... Like, it's really unfunny first of all for the most part okay there, there were I, I saw a few funny episodes from from early on where like i had an occasional good gag but it's just i find it really lazy writing and it's it's making it's making fun of nerds but it's not by nerds you know ner- like nerds are pretty good at making fun of ourselves but there's no there's kind of no warmth in the humor to it it's it's laughing at rather than laughing with Okay, I disagree strongly with everything you just said. Really? <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. I genuinely really love the Big Bang Theory. Like I, I usually what it's usually on right before I start work, mm-hmm. and I usually sit down and watch an episode or two of it before work. Um, I think it's great. Fair enough. I'm, I'm sorry, Bill. I'll agree with you though that it, like it is anything but a comedy show. It's not funny at all. Like, I've never laughed at a Big Bang Theory episode, but I don't watch it for humor. And I kind of wish to just get rid of the, the humor in a way, or the so-called humor. I watch it because of the little nerdy in-jokes. And like, oh, I get, that's a physics joke. Oh, that's really funny. And it's like, oh, that's got, re- that references like, you know, games way back in, the, you know, the old days, pre-PS1 days or whatever. Yeah. Um, and like that, those sort of things I find really good. And, and it's a really happy show. Like, the colors are really nice. It's really colourful and really happy and bouncy. I love it. I don't know, reference humour is something that I think has to... I I have very kind of low tolerance for and it's done very well. What happens if you left the word humour out? What happens if you stop thinking of it as humour and just as, like, reference dialogue? Oh, well, then it's it's just obnoxious. It's just like, oh, I know a thing. Oh, I know a thing too. Let's let's all give ourselves a clap in the back for knowing a thing. 
<laughs> I okay, that's that could be a, va- a valid criticism, but uh, I just I don't think that way. I just really like all the nerd references. Do you know what I like as well? And you might disagree with me, but I think it's nice for a show to promote intellectualism. But I don't think that it does. But it, it at least it discusses intellectualism. Like the characters are all physicists, or well, for the most part, and they um, for the most part they all have doctorates. I mean, you don't get that in TV shows at all. Like, can you name another TV show that's around, that's centered around academics? Not off the top of my head, Frasier maybe, but I don't like Frasier much. Um, oh, you see, I love Frasier as well. Um, Is there anything we actually like? Okay, we 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 both hate Voyager. Okay, we get that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I take your point that that yeah, it, it's it's showing it's showing intellectuals, but I I don't think it shows them in a good light. They're they're objects of fun. Yeah, okay, that that's very true. Um, I mean, like one can't have a funny sitcom if one takes academia seriously. I suppose, but it you can no. On- but there's a difference between taking academ- academia seriously and showing intellectual people as objects of fun. You can have both of those. They're not mutually exclusive ideas. You see, I don't find their treatment of the academics in the show as being offensive in any way. Like, I think it's done really well. Fair enough. And I like that. This is just the, like a, a difference of opinion sort of thing. But there's that physics thought experiment that when you're struggling to come to a conclusion, take things to extremes, and that often helps you decide what side of the line you're on. Mm-hmm. So I would rather see a world where most TV shows are like Big Bang Theory, in which they try at least to bring intellectualism to the fore. Maybe Big Bang Theory does it in a flawed way, but at least it's trying. I would rather see that world as opposed to a world where it was all like made in Chelsea. Do you know what I mean? So I think the world is better off for having Big Bang Theory than it would be if it didn't have it. Right. That, my personal opinion. Oh, and one last thing. I have a student, a student of mine. I asked recently, he's like, he's, he's 11 or something. And I asked him recently what he wants to be when he grows up. And he was like, I want to be a physicist. And I was like, you're kidding. That's really cool. What made you want to be a physicist? And he was like, the Big Bang Theory. I mean, that's great, so, but what do 11-year-olds know about anything? <laughs> no, I know, but the thing is that he that he is watching that and he has been exposed to that as a thing that is mm. cool. Like, he sees physicists as being cool okay, and funny. Enough. So, again, like, I, I don't want... I'm not trying to sway you onto my side. Like, if you don't... I totally get how people can't tolerate that program at all, but I really like it. Uh, and those are my reasons, you know? Mm. So, in the last episode, Bill... Uh, we talked a lot about the design of the new Artifexian alien. Mm-hmm. And I put it out there for people to give their uh, opinions and feedback on the designs uh, I come up with. Yeah. And people did. It was great. Like, a lot of people wrote back in the subreddit, which was awesome. And I think the consensus was that uh, your choice of alien was the better choice of alien. My taste is impeccable. Your taste is infinitely better than mine. So no flat feet, uh, little bulbous feet to go with the little bulbous body. Not only did Reddit think your artifacts in Alien was better than mine, they also think that your choice of TV is much better than mine as well. Everyone, it seems like, was behind Bill's um, idea that the Fly episode from Breaking Bad is brilliant. <laughs> Yeah. So the Reddit is quickly turning into everyone loves Bill and disagrees <laughs> with Edgar. My taste is impeccable. It's, again, infinitely better than mine. Um, so I rewatched The Fly. Okay. Last night. And 
I've upgraded it. Okay. F- from terrible to like subpar. <laughs> from, from terrible to merely bad. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. Some good points though. Um, your man Ryan Johnson is clearly an awesome director. Um, mm. And the filming is really, really good. And his like the way he um, frames things and his cuts are very art house uh, and like really unexpected in TV shows. And that was right. awesome. But I, the dialogue and the premise, just, it was too thin to carry an entire episode, I thought. And I think it's publicly known that that was a filler episode. They uh, spent all their budget on the big super lab. And yeah. they, they needed they needed to pair back. They needed to have one like minimal cast episode with minimal effects and things like that. So I mean, like it was it it was filler. It was always intended to be filler, and it just smacks of that to me. It was filler in terms of production and budget and things, but I still think it was brilliantly done. Yeah, I I think it was brilliantly produced, but I don't think it added anything to the story. I don't think anything oh, that happened really? in that. I don't think anything that happened in that episode furthered the Breaking Bad story. Like, I, I I, get that Walter and Jesse have their own personal demons and that's obviously a source of conflict in their lives. I knew that already. I didn't need an entire episode with a fly to tell me that. Hmm. Now, I'm not saying you're wrong or anything. I'm just, like, giving my opinions on why I dislike it. But I, I was really blown away with the filming. The filming was really good. Yeah. So I guess your, your your issue is more with the writing than with anything on Ryan Johnson's end. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. Did he write it or did he just direct I, it? No, I wouldn't say so. Okay, so the directing is very, very good. The visuals are very, very good. Yeah, just the premise and the plot and some of the dialogue's okay, but I don't know. It just didn't fit for me. Mm. It was written by Sam Catlin and Moira Wally Beckett. There you go. Two people that should not write Breaking Bad episodes. <laughs> I'm sure they wrote other ones as well. <laughs> I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did. But yeah, so that makes me really intrigued to see what happens when he takes over Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Like, can you imagine Star Wars with like filmed in an art house style? Like that would be well, strange with loads of like bizarre cuts and jump cuts and strange framing. Like that would be awesome. He hasn't. He hasn't just done art house kind of stuff. Like he he did um, the film Looper as well, which is just kind of a sci fi thriller. Okay, yeah, no, that's, I don't know anything aside from Brick and that episode of Breaking Bad. Um, I I haven't seen Looper, but it's the one with uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis. The time travels. Oh, okay. uh, Film. That sounds, half of that sounds really intriguing to me. The Joseph Gordon-Levitt part, not the Bruce Willis part. He's a good actor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, no, he, he is a good actor. What else is he in other than Die Hard? Sixth Sense. Oh, yeah, he's very good in Sixth Sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's, he's great in Unbreakable, which is the the previous one, or the next one, by, by the same director, by M. Not Shalaman. <laughs> what an awful director. Oh, like, the, like, diametrically opposed to Ryan Johnson. Oh. No, no, hold on, hold on. Sixth Sense is a good film. Oh, yeah, no, Sixth Sense is a good film. That's like Unbreakable his- is a good film. And Signs is not entirely terrible. Lady in the Water. I haven't seen it. I mean, the, I guess the thing is that all his films are pretty much the same film because there's a, a big ridiculous twist in it. But, you know, Sixth Sense and Unbreakable are pretty good. Unbreakable is, is, is it spoilery for me to say this? I can cut it. I can bleep it out if you want. Okay. Essentially, Unbreakable is... Oh, I think I have seen Unbreakable. 
Yeah. Can you can you briefly describe the plot? Bruce Willis is invulnerable. Oh, and and there's something about they go to a game, some sort of sports game. There's something with a sports game in that film, and there's a, like a little kid. Possibly, it's also got um, Samuel L. Jackson. Oh yeah, and he plays sort of like a, a mentor type figure. Kinda, yeah. Okay, I I think we're on about the same thing. Yeah, that yeah. that wasn't terrible. It wasn't mind blowing either, though. I really like it. I really, I think it's a really good film. Well, if you really like it, the subreddit will really like it. <laughs> and Signs is the alien invasion film. Yeah, no, I definitely haven't seen that. That's, it's interesting. It's there's kind of more to it than you. Th- there's potentially more to it than than you see at first. I take all that on board, Bill. And again, <laughs> I present you with Lady in the Water. La- Lady in the Water, I think it is. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah. no, no. I, hang I, I hang on, and then Avatar: The Last Airbender. Okay. And, then, and then that film with Bruce, uh, with uh, not Bruce Willis, with um, Will Smith, um, After Earth, that was also a shocker. The Village is a shocker. Um, there's some very very bad movies he's made. I I don't I don't disagree with that, but he's not entirely terrible. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> I think, to be honest, I think it's kind of luck on his part. I think he lucked out. You reckon? Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, like the guy clearly isn't incompetent. Like, he clearly can make a film. But he just, like, hit it big with one or two. And mm-hmm. then just was unable to do anything else decent after that. Possibly. Yeah, I don't know. Um, as long as he doesn't take over any filming of anything I care about, I'm fine. He can do whatever he wants. <laughs> um, I was horrified when I found out that The Last Airbender was him. I was like, nope, it's already failed even before I've watched <laughs> it. And apparently it is terrible. Oh, it's it's just, it's the worst. It's like exposition all the time. And like, you know the way movies should show rather than tell? It just yeah. tells you everything, shows you nothing. The casting is horrible. The story just moves like at a, at a bizarre pace. Essentially, the cartoon is handled really well and the film is just handled really poorly. Mm. In any case, there you go, The Fly. It's an okay episode, unless you're Bill and everyone else on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, come here. That, so that's pretty much all from the Reddit, really. Oh, one more thing, actually. Uh, on the subject of music. Yeah? Someone suggested that I, I have some music that's similar to the music in World of Warcraft. Okay. Which is very interesting. I had a, I had a look, or had a listen, rather. And uh, the music's really good for that game. Like, there's some really good orchestral music. Yeah, well, Blizzard are a big company. They can they can pay a big dollar. Yeah, this is true. But I wasn't expecting that. Like, it's really, really good music. Um, it's a bit... It's not really suited to artifacting because it's a bit grand and epic. But it was still really cool to be introduced to that music because I've never played that game. Mm. So thank you to that Reddit whose name escapes me. But um, I had a good bit of time listening to some World of Warcraft music and it made me very happy. Uh, ZXANA. ZXANA. Thank you, ZXANA. Video game music is is huge. Like there's there's a there's really a lot to it. So it's a I think it in a few years we'll start seeing being recognized in the same way that we we think about film music now. Oh, definitely, yeah, definitely. Considering like like it's such a huge market, video games. So it makes sense yeah. for the producers of video games to really like you know like you say pay top dollar for great great music. Mm-hmm. And in any case, with graphics getting so good as well, video games are essentially turning into films as well. 
Um, or at least they have these, like, they can have these broad cinematic sort of sequences, which was just impossible in the sort of, like, N64 days. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, so anyhow, so on the, while we're talking about music as well, uh, I changed the music to uh, the Artifexian. I changed the Artifexian music. Yeah, so I noticed. So um, it's not a permanent change. I just want to make that clear. I'm trying out new things. What do you think about it, Bill? I liked it. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I'm kind of slow to accept change sometimes yeah. <laughs> with things that I've gotten used to. You know, like when people get like new haircuts and things, it usually takes me a while to get used to it. Um, I know this like from firsthand, like. Uh, no, because I always got used to yours very quickly. You did, but there, I was really funny. Oh no! Except for one of them. Except for I think it was when you cut the dreads off. I think it took me a while to get used to that. Oh, did it? All right, I no, think so. The time I got a pompadour, you like, I remember distinctly you coming over to me like, I don't know, a week or two after I'd gotten the pompadour and you were like, I like your hair now. I've come to terms with it. <laughs> oh, was it? Was that, maybe that was it. It was so funny. And then I was like, uh, what? You think <laughs> you think about my hair in your spare time? I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't I think about it in your spare time. We were, we were living together at the time and we were going to the same college. So I saw you every day. Oh, yeah, that's right. I saw we you too living. bloody much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was that was quite funny. But anyway, you're slow to accept change, but you accepted this change? I mean, I, I, I liked it well enough, and I think it'll, it'll, I'll, I'll come to think that it fits in. I, I expect I'll find that it fits in. Okay, all right. It's um, kind of, there's something kind of new agey about it. Oh. What? Oh, that's a bad word, though. Are you mortally offended? I am a bit. Hi. Oh, uh, new age. That, those words, like, conjure images of, like, crystals and people, like, rubbing each other's toes to cure some sort of disease or something. Uh, no, I, no. Yeah, yeah. They may be on, on you know, flawed epistemological grounds, but, you know, sometimes they've got good aesthetics. Yeah, I see. I didn't think of it all. I thought it was just uh, as a kind of a slick electro track. Right. Anyways, it makes no difference what it is, really, as long as it's some sort of music for the background. See, I chose that based on the fact that it was... It wasn't too complex, but busy enough. Yeah. But then... In the comments below the video, like opinion, the opinions were like divided. Like some people were like, made it really easy to listen to you with this new music. And other people were like, I could not understand what you were saying. The music was too complicated. And it's like, yeah, it's really weird. I didn't expect it to be so like split down the middle. Like it would have been so much better if everyone just went, I hate it. You know, because then I could just go, right, I need to change it. But now it's kind of like, I don't know if I should change it. Mm. So in any case, though, I'm still on the lookout for more and new interesting stuff and eventually one day bill i'll hit something that i'm like yeah this is a hundred percent cool okay so uh do you want to head into the mailbag sure thing what have we got in the mailbag we have a uh, a few emails to catch up on uh because we couldn't get this done for the last episode or rather we did get it done but the audio just went mental yeah i don't know Um, what happened there yeah, it was really weird. So we did actually do feedback last episode, but unfortunately it couldn't make the final cut. So we have one here from um, Dominic. Uh-huh. And this was in relation to mapping galaxies. Yes. And he proposes a system here on how to divide up a three-dimensional galaxy. Now, the maths in it are pretty, um, pretty advanced, uh, or at least I would need to actually sit down and look at it. I can't quite get an exact image of it in my head from from reading it. But I think I think I know roughly what he's getting at. 
So you uh, choose a, a center point in the in the galaxy. Okay. And you have an x-axis, which is going through the thickness. So through the, the, the short uh, direction, the short dimension. So like the galactic plane. Yeah, through, through like the, the bubble of the galactic hub and not out towards the arms. Yeah, yeah. Uh, perpendicular to the plane. So th- those two are well-defined. And now we create a sphere with radius of one unit length around the center. So there's a little bubble there of whatever length in the center. And that's the basis for the rest of it. That's divided into eight, that bubble. Okay. And then there's a bigger bubble built onto that each time, but so that the eighths remain in the same volume each time. So it'll be less far out from the center. Like the the boundary will be a shorter distance away from the center. Right. The overall volume of of the segment will be the same. Yeah, because volume goes up higher than radius. Yeah. Or go, goes up faster than radius. Yeah, so that's quite an interesting way, and it breaks it down in a in a very sort of manageable mathematical sense. And it has the benefit for things like, I don't know, if, if we're talking about this as an administrative division, then everything is the same volume. Mm. So there, there, there's quite a lot of benefits to that. What's odd about it, for, from my point of view, though, is, you know, say you're four divisions away from the center, that's a thin segment spread out over a sort of a huge two-dimensional surface area. Yeah. So you could have two points in that that are closer to points, say, two segments away towards the center of the gal- of the galaxy than they are to each other. Right. You know what I mean? Which, it makes it a little unwieldy from that point of view, that it's, it's based on the sort of an arbitrary um, geometric division of space rather than anything directly useful yeah that's true you're you you're kind I mean? of yeah you're kind of superimposing a geometric structure over the galaxy yeah. in order to map it yeah whereas that does not take into account useful features like um natural features or like say political groupings and things like that not not even that it's just that i mean if you have let's say the find the two points that are, are as far away from each other as possible in one segment if you're on an outer segment, that's a good bit away. That's spread over a huge, a huge sort of curved surface area. So they're going to be closer to a lot of places in other segments than yes. they are to each other. Uh, I so see. It, yeah, yeah, it makes it kind of unwieldy. It'd be like if I don't know. It'd be like if um, the south of England was ruled from Edinburgh, but nowhere in between was. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's very true. Um, I hadn't considered that at all. That's a good yeah. point. I mean. As with everything, no single mapping system is going to satisfy all all requirements. That's just that's just one issue mm. in it. Um, uh, but yeah, otherwise, I think it's it's pretty cool, and there's some neat little mathematics to it. If Dominic is listening, and if he's okay with us sharing the maths, you might put it up in the show notes or put it up on the Reddit or something at some stage. Yeah, definitely, because I think you do need the maths to fully appreciate what Dominic's trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Dominic, if, email us uh, and let us know if we can post this publicly because I think people will be really interested in seeing this. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a slight issue with with it, with the system though. Oh yeah, in that it's not intuitive enough. I think. Remember we spoke um, before. I think was it was it one or two podcasts ago about tabletop games mm-hmm. and how they use like, cliches when it comes to, like, race. Like, you have the orc and the elf and things like that. Yeah, there are certain certain expectations that they have to satisfy to work. 
Right, exactly. Because you need the gamers to immediately know what's going on in order for them to engage. Yeah. So the same thing is kind of here. Like, it's a very cool system and it's really like matsy and I really like it. Yeah. But like, you really have to spend a lot of time sitting down and going, right, what is going on? And if you were to try and squeeze that into the narrative of a story, say, or even have it like an Easter egg in like the lore or whatever, like it, that takes a lot of explaining. Mm-hmm. And the more explaining is needed, the less an audience is willing to engage with it. Yeah. I think, I think. That doesn't make it a bad idea. It just means that it's very hard to apply. Um, exactly. I mean, volume isn't something that we grasp as intuitively as distance, I think. Yeah. So that that's possibly um, part of what you're getting at there. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because have you have to think in three dimensions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's way easier to think in two dimensions. Yeah. Um, one less dimension. One less dimension. <laughs> <laughs> one less thing to think about. Yeah, so, but a really cool idea. And I, again, it's super that people write into the show and like have taken the time to come up with really neat ideas and write them down and send them into us. Like that is awesome. Like really makes me so mm-hmm. happy. Thank you very much. Uh, oh, we, we have one here from a longtime listener. Uh, okay. By the, by the name of Rumac. <laughs> right. Who suggests that we that uh, you should subscribe to Zidnaf. <laughs> so so I read this. So to put this in context, <laughs> we had a language episode not so long ago. And on the back of that language episode, loads of people sent me comments being like, you should subscribe to Zidnaf. And in that episode, I said, no more comments, people. Seriously, I've already subscribed. It's all good. And uh, Rubak kindly sent an email post that show. Uh, saying I should subscribe to Zidnaf, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> Rumak is someone known to us both personally in real life, so we'll uh, we'll move on from that one. Yeah, yeah, and that that I see that I can be kind of scathing towards him because of that. I wouldn't be scathing towards uh, you know a stranger like that. That's it then. Uh, apart from we've got one left from Kyle Parrish, who uh, wants to talk about J.J. Abrams and how I I like Die Hard, how I personally like Die Hard, but I don't like J.J. Abrams Star Trek. There's definitely a discussion to be had here. I think we might hold off on discussing J.J. Abrams until the next Star Wars film is out. So we can have a kind of a fuller discussion on it. Yeah, definitely. Because we'll definitely have a Star Wars podcast. And if it turns out, if the Star Wars film turns out to be great, then we'll have a, a discussion about what J.J. Abrams did better in Star Wars than he did in the likes of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And if it turns out to be awful, we'll just relate it to J.J. Abrams' Star Trek movies as well. <laughs> so in either way, th- we'll work those films into the Star Wars episode and you'll get a sort of a full a full idea of our, our feelings towards J.J. Abrams. Mm-hmm. New Horizons has flown by Pluto. Mm-hmm. And it would be a shame not to talk about Pluto, uh, given that I'm such a space nerd. Are you? I am. I am a bit, yeah. <laughs> huh. uh, who would have knew? Who would have thought, eh? So, have were you following the Pluto thing at all? Um, a little bit. I not not actively. I saw a lot of it, and I, I read a few things. Okay, well, tell us what what do you know about Pluto? So, it is a dwarf planet. It is a dwarf planet. We'll, Previously, we'll, the, the ninth planet in the solar system. We will talk about the dwarf planet thing in a second. I have some misgivings. I need to air. What else? Uh, it's tidally locked with its moon, its main moon, Charon. They're both tidally locked to each other, if I recall correctly. Yeah, they're kind of a double planet system. Yeah, and the 
epicenter, is that the correct term, of their system is actually outside of Pluto. So they both orbit a, a point around Pluto. Yeah. Or like the, the, they both point, orbit a point in between them in space. It's not like the moon orbits Earth. Exactly, yeah. It's a different system to the Earth-Moon system. Yeah, because uh, they're so close in in size. Um, it's a little bigger than they thought. They, the New Horizons discovered that it's a little bit... Uh, it's got a bigger radius than we, than we previously thought. Uh-huh. And they've got, like, the first kind of actual good photographs of it ever. What else do I know? Yeah, and boy, um, are those photographs better than the last ones. Oh, uh, miles better. Miles better. Like, I, I was forced to use the pixelated things for my Dwarf Planet video. Um, mm. And I kind of wish uh, I had waited <laughs> to get decent pics of Pluto. And those pics are beautiful. Mm-hmm. I, I that's all I can really remember right now. Did you follow the live streams by any chance? No. Okay, so I follow the live streams, believe it or not. I would believe that. <laughs> and it was, um, I was actually kind of worried because the flyby of Pluto occurred on my one year anniversary. All right. So myself and the captain have been going out for one year and I was like... Oh, congratulations to you both. Oh, thank you. Uh, but I was like, oh God, I don't think I can go to her and be like can I not do the anniversary and watch Pluto all day? But I did. <laughs> and she was fine with it, which was awesome. So she made me an American breakfast uh, and was like, you know, you sit and eat the American breakfast while you watch the live stream. I'll read a book. It'll be great. And that's what happened. And it was Duh. awesome. It was great. Uh, because if okay, I... Hold on. What's an American breakfast? Pancakes and stuff? Pancakes, bacon, maple syrup, and scrambled eggs. Yeah, it was very good. It was it was a whopping whopping breakfast. I was very happy. So I watched I watched live stream stream, and there's a couple of things that uh, I just want to talk about. Sure. One being that it was abundantly clear why people don't get space, like <laughs> from watching those live streams, because essentially, like uh, with the initial flyby thing, all it was was there was a lot of hype building up to it, and then they went to like mission control. And there was loads of people standing around and they had flags. And then they done a countdown of when our New Horizons was at its closest approach. And then when it went, when the countdown hit zero, everyone waved their flags and cheered. And if you're not into space, it'd be really hard to get why that is so significant, you know? Whereas, like, I was wait, there... Wait, sorry, what was, what was the countdown counting? Uh, it was counting to the point at which New Horizons will be at its closest approach and ping back a signal. Oh, okay. Okay? So, like, I was, like... I was, like, so excited. I was like, come on, 10, 9, 8, and all this. And then, like, the captain was like, okay, yeah. I mean, like, it's not the most exciting thing in the world, but I'm happy for you. <laughs> so, it's just, it's funny, like, this, um, like, how space nerds get all this stuff, and people who aren't into space really don't understand why people are into space. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing was, on the lead-up to the countdown, Charles Bolden, I think that's his name. He's the like the head of NASA. Mm-hmm. He was doing a lot of media interviews. Various reporters from various newspapers from from around the world uh, were given a little bit of time with him, and he would explain what's going on. After a couple of interviews, it became abundantly clear that if he kept saying the word "planet," reporters would latch onto it and be like, "Are you going to change the distinction back to planet now because of New Horizons?" And it was so bad that uh, one fella um, working like behind the scenes had to come up and be like, don't mention the planet thing. Just use the word Pluto. Otherwise, people will just like, you know, not report on what is actually the important thing to report on, which yeah. which was really sad and really frustrating because I was kind of like, 
people, we need to get over this planet dwarf planet thing and just like accept Pluto as an object, regardless of its classification. That it and does, yeah, it doesn't make a damn difference. It makes no difference. From Pluto's perspective, Pluto is still this hunk of rock and ice out there, and it is not going to change based on what we call it. But again, the popular media, like that was the only thing that they seemed to latch onto. Like no one asked interesting questions. It was all just kind of orientated around, oh, so does this mean it's a planet now? And that really frustrated me. I can imagine. Yeah. So I assume from your reaction then, you don't care about a dwarf planet versus planet. I don't care. And I, I, I can't understand why anyone would care. I think the only reason to care is kids. Having the an arbitrary dwarf planet distinction makes learning the solar system easy for children. So they don't have to go in school. They don't have to learn, oh, there's like, you know, 30 objects in the solar system. They just need to learn there's, you know, there's X amount of planets and then we have these other things, you know, but it is arbitrary and it's not really scientific. It's not a scientific classification. It's just, it's arbitrary. Have you come across any um, good nanomics to remember the the eight planets? Because it used to be my very easy nanomic just sums up nine planets. <laughs> right. So you could just say my very easy nanomic just sums up nine, but that, you know, isn't very helpful or accurate anymore. That's very true, yeah. <laughs> to be fair, I've never used those nanomics. How do you pronounce that? Nanomics. Nanomics. I, think, I don't know. Nanomics. <laughs> um, I've never used those nanomics because um, I've just always known the planets and in the order they come in. Mm-hmm. Like, it's never been a thing for me. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I'd be interested to see what is the current nanomic. Um, yeah, they're not. They're not. Um, they're not. No. Mnemonic, sorry, I've been saying it wrong. Mnemonic. They're not, like, necessary, but they can be useful. Yeah, of course. I think yeah. I only learned that when I was, like, 17 anyway, so... <laughs> there, there's a nice one that I can't recall at the moment uh, for stellar classifications. Because oh, you yeah? have, like, O stars, then is it B stars, A stars, F, G, K, and M. And see, mm. I, just, I just know them, roughly. I, I think that's right. Um, but there is one with if, them. If you had, if you had a mnemonic for it, you'd be sure. This is very true. <laughs> oh, oh wait, no, no. I think it's um. Oh, be a fine girl, kiss me. Oh, be okay. a fine girl, kiss me. But yeah, so I was very annoyed at the dwarf planet planet thing. It makes no difference. Who cares? You know, it's, it's it detracts from the actual proper discussion that needs to be had. Mm-hmm. What ought the discussion focus on? Like, as in, what the discoveries we are expecting to make on Pluto will be. Instead of asking mm-hmm. questions like, is Pluto going to be a planet now? Ask like, what are you expecting to find? Also, isn't that like nothing to do with NASA? Yeah, it's the IAU that set that. Like, yeah, like NASA have no say in that and like they don't care, presumably. <laughs> yeah, they don't, they don't, they really don't care. But to be fair, like the, the media is not good at like being good, if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> like they, like they just, they aren't astronomers. And astrophysicists, so they don't know. So they just ask whatever's in the kind of the zeitgeist at the time. So it really, it's 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 the public's fault as well. A little bit. I mean, like, I, I don't want to, like, you know, be all, like, up on my soapbox, but I think we do need to understand a little bit more about space than we do. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, there's a huge demographic of people who, like, think the moon's a planet. There's a huge amount of people that think that the, um, the uh, sun revolves around the Earth. And not because, really? yeah, not because they like, um, they willingly subscribe to this kind of uh, geocentric idea. 
It's just because that that's what they think. They're like, oh, the sun, the sun, the sun spins around the earth every day. So it's like the sun goes around the earth. Like they just don't want to be informed. And it's like, God damn it, people, come on. Hmm. So yeah, it, it, like it, it endlessly frustrates me about what people think about space. But yeah, so the, the Pluto launch was very good and it's exciting seeing all the images come back. Like um, obviously the high res image of Pluto with the big love heart, which was which is lovely, really nice. And the images of like the ice planes uh, coming back is really neat as well because it implies that um, Pluto has a relatively new surface. Oh. So that means there has to be some sort of like a geological activity going on because otherwise we'd expect to see loads of craters. But something's, yeah. something's covering up that, those craters and that's a really interesting thing and I haven't come across a, a valid theory to describe that. So that's obviously, they need to study that. That's really interesting. And XKCD did a wonderful little thing. I'll put it in the show notes where they uh, put up an image of the high-res picture of Pluto and they marked in really funny little terms for all the features. I think I saw that, yeah. Do you, you, you see the one with the Lion King reference? I don't think I did. So you know the way on the new image of Pluto, there's a giant love heart shape? Yeah. And it's bright. It's like really, really bright. And, oh, yeah, yeah. And then the two, like, in the lower portion of Pluto... Uh, the two surrounding regions are very dark. So, like, mm-hmm. XKCD drew a little line and being, like, the boundary to the Pride Lands. And it's, like, the hyena country down below. <laughs> <laughs> it was really good. And there's another couple of really funny little bits. Like, there's one area that looks like a little dinosaur. So he's, like, you know, like the dinosaur bit. And it's and there's, like, a, there's, what is it? There's a charging socket as well on it. <laughs> um, so I thought that was really funny. I'll definitely link that in the show notes. That's the kind of thing I think he's he's best at. I, I haven't really liked a lot of his comics for for a while now, but his like his labeling when he labels stuff like like he did for Pluto are the do you know remember the Upgore Five? Oh no, what's Upgore Five? It's a drawing of the the plans for the Saturn V rocket labeled using only the ten thousand most common words in English. <laughs> Brilliant! It's very, very funny. Oh, uh, you must, you must link me to that. I'll show that in the show notes. That sounds really, really I will interesting. Do. I will do. He's really good at stuff like that, and his What If series is is very good as well at the moment. Yeah. So I am, um, I'm subscribed to his web comics and his What If series. Mm-hmm. And you're dead right. I think the What If series is a lot. The quality is a lot better than um, the comics. But like, still, uh, as far as web comics go, it's really good. It's really good. One I'm completely losing fate with at the moment is Cyanide and Happiness. Oh, I haven't read that in a long time. Yeah, it's just it's not really appealing me appealing to me now. I don't know why. Just eh, I don't know. So I'm on the lookout for some really good web comics, um, because I have shockingly few in my feed. Have you read Order of the Stick? I haven't. What is Order of the Stick? Order of the Stick is a it's it's a webcomic kind of set within a D and D world, essentially. All right, and cool. It starts out just as kind of silly jokes about dungeon crawls, um, but it's it's developed this really really big and complex and nuanced story. It's really worth checking out. Cool, Order of the Stick, yeah. Order of the Stick. It's and because it's it's kind of started out just sort of stick figure, like barely above stick figure art, and his art style is still that, but it's evolved to have a lot of kind of subtlety to it. And I know people who read it who aren't gamers, who who have no interest in tabletop games, and they just enjoy the story of it. So cool, yeah, and it's funny as well. Oh, thanks, man. That's really good. I'll I'll once yeah. we're finished recording, I'll have a look at that, and I'll uh, mm-hmm. feedback will follow in the next episode. 
Great. <laughs> so yeah, good time for Pluto. Good, good time for science. It's really nice that science is coming to the fore um, and making making popular news in a way. That's really, really helpful. And it was a great day watching the live stream. And I look forward to the next couple of months of the data coming in and reading about all the new and amazing discoveries we make of um, everyone's favourite not-planet. I think I saw as well that I didn't realise till like this week is that actually a good few years ago as New Horizons was passing Jupiter, I think. Okay. It got um, it got images of volcanoes on Io, which is pretty cool. Oh, are they from New Horizons? I think so, yeah. Oh. Yeah, the volcanoes on Io are really cool. And like they're they're made by tidal forces, tidal interactions between it and Jupiter. That is metal. Which is really cool because I, as far as I know, I could be wrong, Io isn't large enough to have a molten core, so it wouldn't be large enough to have a like to have tectonic activity. Yeah. Um, but given Jupiter's just sheer gravity, it like tugs Io around and then it heats up its interior and you get like these volcanoes. That's so cool. Jupiter is just metal as hell. So so I almost be like pretty close to the, the roach limit or whatever if, if it's being pulled on that much. Oh, I don't know. I'm not even going mm. to hazard an attempt at saying where uh, what's called Jupiter's roach limit is. Part of me thinks that just being in the vicinity of Jupiter is enough to have it do stuff to you. I mean, like Jupiter's responsible. Well, we think Jupiter's responsible for having the asteroid belt, like tearing up a protoplanet into the asteroid belt. And I mean, the asteroid belt is like a couple of AU away from Jupiter, yeah. you know, so it still has an effect there. Um, well, I'm, I'm sure I've told you before, um, a, a great fact I learned in a composition seminar one time, actually, ooh. that asteroids that have an orbital speed that is... Oh, sorry, if you look, if you look at the, the charts of asteroid densities compared to their speeds, there are very few asteroids that have an orbital speed that is the same as Jupiter's or like a whole number, uh, a whole integer multiple of Jupiter's because that's a harmonic resonance and they get pulled out. Yeah, so what what Bill is describing there, and I didn't realise you knew this, like this is not something I always knew as well, um, is that within the asteroid belt, there are these things called Kirkwood gaps. And essentially it's where the density completely drops off and we're missing asteroids at these points. And that's because, like Bill said, those points in space are in harmonic resonance with Jupiter, and it um, it just knocks them out of their orbit there. So the asteroid belt is not what you see on telly, like this kind of homogenous, rocky zone. It's kind of very segmented. And it's also, like, not nearly as dense as it would be shown to be. Oh, like yeah. In, in that sequence in um, The Empire Strikes Back and stuff. Yeah, it's just total nonsense. Yeah, it's just yeah. not going to happen. I hesitate to say hard figures on a podcast that I haven't prepared, but I think the entirety of the asteroid belt accounts for something like like one tenth of the Earth's of the Moon's mass. Really? Yeah, it's very, very, very not massive at all. Like, um, wow. So it's definitely not going to look like it is on Star Wars, and it's it's like segregated. There's like gaps and things like that, um, mm-hmm. almost like a ring system in a way. And I, but I use the word almost loosely. Don't kill me, internet. Almost like what? Like a ring system, like Saturn's ring system. Oh, okay, I get you. The way yeah. it has gaps, but they're kind of made with a different mechanism. Yeah, I understand. But yeah, Jupiter, great, great planet. And also, it could be considered a dwarf planet if you want to take uh, the dwarf planet terminology to its like extreme conclusion. 
Jupiter could be. Yeah, because one of <laughs> one of the criteria is that to in order to be a planet, one must have cleared its orbital neighborhood. Right. So like it's not in a dirty region of space. It's soaked up all the material or shot it off in space. Yeah. And with Jupiter's orbit, it has the Trojan and Greek asteroids in its orbit. Yeah. It has like a collection of like rocky debris at two points in its orbit. So if you want to be super pedantic, Jupiter kind of isn't a planet, <laughs> you know, and which just speaks volumes to how stupid and arbitrary the dwarf planet planet distinction is. Yeah. So as I'm always telling you, Edgar, you make good content. Oh. No, you do. You know, you make good content. I mean, obviously, I pay my role in making the podcast the huge success that it is, obviously. Yeah, th- th- this podcast <laughs> will be an epic failure without Bill. Um, I-, I joke, I joke. But the <laughs> YouTube channel, like, you do really, really good work there. And we've had a couple of comments since the last few videos came out of people asking your advice. And I think this is probably a nice way to follow on from talking about uh, how to move yourself away from it in physics like we were discussing last week. People seem to want to know more about your work process and how you actually go about making your videos. So yeah. could we talk about that a bit? We most definitely can. Bill, how do you want to frame this discussion? Like we can do extreme gory detail or I can talk about it in a generalized sense. What do you think would be best? Hmm. I guess let, let's put this in terms of advice for people who, who want to, to do their own YouTube channels. So, I mean, basic workflow, things to kind of improve workflow, and then logistics of actually getting things up there and promoting. And Okay. And I, I, I think that's probably what people, I mean, I don't know, I, what, do, what do other beginner YouTubers want to hear? That sounds legit. That sounds like what you would need to know. Also, I suppose we are going to frame this from a world-building YouTube channel standpoint, yeah? Okay. All right. So, with that in mind, my advice would be don't start a YouTube channel. (laughs) And the reason why I say this is because looking back, I think that what might have been more optimal would be to do a blog. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's a lot easier to communicate, like, say, maths, for example, um, in, in written form. Um, Much, much easier. And I suppose the ideal world for me would have been do a blog with an audiovisual component. Okay. You know, so like go through the meat of the stuff in text and then demonstrate its application in audiovisual. So I think that, so if anyone is interested in setting up a world building thing on the internet, I think that's the way to go. A world building educational kind of thing, like what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. A similar sort of thing to me, yeah. Okay. Uh, and I think that if that piques your interest there, um, you should go check out Atomic Rockets, which is a world-building educational sort of thing, like what I do, but in blog form. It's not, it doesn't involve video. And I'll give you an idea of, of the pros and cons. You can see how the different methods of doing things. Um, one can get over, get across a lot more information in blog form than one can do in video form. But, oh, actually, and a caveat to that. There is really hardly any world-building YouTube channels. You know, like if you Google world-building, or if you YouTube world-building, you get me, and you get some, like, sporadic other ones, and most of them are not really world-building. They kind of have just one or two world-building videos or something like that. So, I'm not saying start a blog to, like, minimize my competition. Like, that's not at all (laughs) what I'm saying. Clever move, Edgar. (laughs) Clever move. Not at all, not at all. I think a blog is more optimal. 
But I would like to see more world building on YouTube because that would give me a chance to interact with more channels as well, you know, um, mm. and do like crossover work and things like that. So there, yeah. So just thought I'd start off with that. Right. So let's talk videos, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> sure thing. Okay. So I have my workflow. See, I have a checklist that helps me through my workflow that I use. So I have that open in front of me. So I'll just start talking through it and then stop me if I get too waffly. Sure thing. Okay. All right. So the first thing on my on my workflow is script. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which is pretty obvious. Um, and by script, that obviously involves all the research as well. Um, my advice on research is try not to use Wikipedia too often. Okay. I think. What, that... what other sources would you recommend? So when it comes to space, there's a number of sources you can use. I'll put these in the show notes. Um, but also, I mean, like, there's a number, like, Google Books is quite good sometimes. Yeah. Um, try just anything that's, like, primary sources would be great, but anything that's not an encyclopedia. Are encyclopedias good places to start off? Yeah, uh, that's a very good point. Uh, commonly, I will, I will go to Wikipedia and read through the Wikipedia page and make notes of the interesting points and see, can I verify those points on other sites? Mm-hmm. And very often as well, like, you can go down to citations on Wikipedia and follow the links there, and they usually take you to some interesting places. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I write a script. I research a script. Um, I try and write about two to three different drafts of a script to try and get rid of nonsense that doesn't need to be there. Uh, then I ship it over to you, Bill, to have a proofread. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes. When it's a particularly problematic one or one that I have concerns about, I ship it over to you. So having a friend to mm-hmm. proofread things really helps. Editors are really, really important, whatever you're doing. Yeah, oh, you've no idea. Because you might think you're on top of things and then just like a little tiny thing can get through the net and then suddenly the entire internet goes, mm, you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do that. And then, yeah, that's essentially it for scripting. Just research, script, and try and have it be as legitimate as possible. Mm-hmm. All right. Any questions on that? No, that's, that seems fine. That's so you want a good script to start off with. You need to have a solid script before you start recording. If, if you're scripting a video. Yeah. Okay. Obviously, if you're going to do it in a like number file sort of style where you interview someone with knowledge, then no script is required. Of course. Yeah. Um, and scripting does slow the process down something serious. Mm-hmm. If I didn't have to script, I could punch out a video every couple of days. But the scripting just slows everything down. But uh, for me, I need it because one, I want to learn about what I'm talking about. And two, I don't want to run the risk of being wrong on the internet. And you minimize that (laughs) risk by scripting and rereading and proofing and things like that. Okay. All right. So after scripting uh, comes storyboarding. All right. So I, I take my script and I just draw pictures while reading it. And I just have, so I have that as like a summary in front of me and I hang that on my wall as I animate. And very often the cool thing that happens is that the storyboard influences the script. Oh. Yeah, which is really cool. So I'll I'll have worded something some way and then when I go to storyboard, I realize I can just draw it instead of say it. Yeah. So then I go back and edit the script again to further knock out words. Do you ever change things, like, if you see a nice kind of visual link you can make that you could put things in the script in a different order? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, okay. yeah. If And, yeah, that's happened numerous times. The The storyboarding is almost is almost the most important, essential part of the scripting process. 
Right. Which is which, great. Which is kind of cool. And I think uh, not immediately obvious when you think about these things. So then, once I've all that done, I go to record the audio. Mm-hmm. So, to record the audio, I usually try and stand up, which is, which again might seem a bit weird, but it's kind of important because, you know, you can get proper, proper like tone and posture and proper delivery of, of things. Um, I found sitting down kind of, it, it, it like mutes the voice almost, you know? Really? Yeah, kind of like the way, you know, when singers, like opera singers um, sing, they, they prefer to be standing up. You know, they don't, they don't like when they have to sing. Of when course, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's kind of the same thing. You feel more confident and your shoulders are back and you like bang out the script really well. So I try and, ha- I try and stand up and I don't memorize my scripts. Maybe that's, that's something to be said. Um, mm-hmm. I read from the laptop as I record. Ideally, if time wasn't an issue, I would memorize the scripts because that means you can really deliver it really well. Yeah. Um, but that would add, like, geez, that could add another week onto production time, you know? I don't know. I find from when I speak in public and things like that, mm. that I I prefer not to have things learnt off by heart. Right. Because it becomes stilted. I I mean, I have, usually I'll um, say when I, when I give presentations on my Botswana work or whatever, I have, like, my essay and I, I depending on how what length I'm allowed to talk for. I edit that down into a sort of a, a shorter essay, but I, I don't worry too much about having it exact because I will extemporize a little bit on stage. I'll change things around. Yeah. Um, I'll I th- flow differently. I think that works really well when it is live. Right. Um, because if you make, if you fumble or uh, misspeak, people are just like, yeah, well, he's just, he's just talking to us. He's giving a presentation. Whereas if you if you were to fumble or misspeak on the internet, it's like that's set in stone for the rest of eternity, <laughs> you know. So, um, like, I'm totally with you. The, the few times I had to give presentations and talks in in college, like I would never prepare those. That would be really odd for me to prepare a, like mm. a presentation. I'd have maybe one or two bullet points, have a rough idea of what the first section, the middle section, the last section of the talk would be, and that's it. But whereas the YouTube thing is totally different. The YouTube thing is like it's prepared to within an inch of its life, like. Yeah. Well, for me, that works. Uh, obviously, other people will have other methods of doing this. Like, I cite Numberphile again and Brady Haran's work. It is all not prepared, but it is all brilliant. Okay, so then, the ne- uh, anything else on that? Um, no, no, that, that all sounds sounds pretty, pretty solid. That all makes sense to me. I guess there'll be less scripting involved for people who want to do sort of vlog type deliveries yeah. or the less um, storyboarding involved the scripting won't involve that that stage but otherwise for anything where you're, you're doing any other graphics that'll seems like a pretty critical part yeah of the process absolutely yeah definitely yeah if you're a vlog yeah there's no need to do it at all i, I will what say about, go on sorry, after you no no go on <laughs> what about your little vlog sections at the end of your videos oh that's a really good question bill yeah so i have tried doing them ad lib and it just doesn't work. <laughs> like, okay. I can't ad lib in front of the camera. It just comes out as absolute nonsense. Again, long-time listeners of the podcast will know this because I waffle like crazy. <laughs> and so those little outro sections would turn into like 10-minute rants. So I also script those. And in fact, we're going to get to them in a bit. <laughs> okay, All I'll, right. I'll uh, leave that to later. Okay, so then uh, so then we have, yes, we have 
research, script, storyboard, record audio. Obviously, by recording audio, that is including things like, you know, edit after recording, master it. Really important to master audio, okay? Like, a big mistake I see people who are starting off make is that they think that the audio that goes in raw uh, from the recording is the final audio. It is nowhere near the final audio. Could you describe a little bit what mastering involves? Okay, now this this could take up an entire podcast, all right? Uh, but, so I'll keep this kind of vague. I'll link to some good uh, mastering tutorials on YouTube if anyone's interested. But essentially, it involves stuff like uh, EQing, uh, normalizing, compressing, hard limiting, basically just making the voice louder. Okay. Because you don't want listeners to have to ride the volume knob while they listen. Um, right. You want you want to just have it a nice loudness that it's nice and consistent, and people don't ever think about the volume. You know, mm-hmm. mastering is like an art within itself. It's it's yeah. it's crazy. You know, and I don't do it perfectly. There are times when it's it goes completely wrong. I am not a I'm not a professional at this. Um, like you say, I'm an auto auto what? Autodidact. I'm an autodidact when it comes to sound engineering. <laughs> Oh, and which reminds me, if anyone has any, like, cool... If, if someone is a sound um, engineer uh, and they want to leave some mastering tips in the comments, I would be extremely interested in hearing those tips. Same here, actually. Yeah, same here. Yeah, anyone who does anything that involves audio, mastering is, like, crucial. Mm-hmm. So, anyhow, after everything's edited and mastered, I then import that into Final Cut which is my uh, editing software of choice. Okay. And I hate Final Cut. <laughs> <laughs> of choice, but also not really. <laughs> yeah, so what, what this is, is um, I kind of fell into Final Cut and it doesn't really work very well for me in terms of the videos that I make, like the time-lapse sort of thing. I'm not willing to dedicate time to, re- to learning another system. Yeah. Like, I know how to use Final Cut. It does its job okay. It's a bit glitchy. It crashes quite a lot, but, you know, learning a new thing would involve a huge investment of time and it's not worth it. So I just want to say that maybe perhaps choose your editing software really wisely. Shop around. Shop around, definitely. Anyhow, so I put it into Final Cut and whilst it's like starting to load into Final Cut, I start my pre-filming checks. Okay. Okay. All right. So I, I really like checklists. So this this is why I said like this could get very, very detailed. Uh, so my pre-filming checklists are I need to check for paper supply. There has been times where I've been like, I'm going to film today. And there's been no paper in the house, which is like detrimental. So you do it all on paper? You don't, I, you don't use a whiteboard or anything? I don't use a whiteboard. I don't use a whiteboard because some of the colors uh, one can get for whiteboards are pretty garish. Right. I don't have the same color palette as I have with like pencils and markers. Yeah. So I I choose paper. The downside of that is that I have like several hundred, maybe even thousands of sheets of paper lying around my bedroom. Like I'm looking at it now. It's 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 a substantial stack. Do you have all of the the artifactian I have, pages? I have every single artifactian page. Uh, that is class. <laughs> Do you think so? That is amazing. So like when we make it big, we can like auction all those off anyhow so we check for paper okay we then check to see if the markers are working 
I don't know why you're laughing. This is obvious, Bill. I, I mean, yeah, look, it is. It, it's kind of, it's so obvious that I'm laughing. <laughs> no, but see, but the thing is, though, if I don't have this on a checklist, I'll start filming and be like, oh, crap, my markers are have ran out. You know? Uh, yeah. then I need to check to see if my calculator is in the house. <laughs> and I, I'm like, this is very serious stuff. And then I need to check to see, this is actually very serious this bit. I need to check to see if all the electronic things have a charged battery in them. Yeah. So my camera needs to be charged. My intervalometer needs to be charged. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, and everything needs to be up and running. I need to check to see if the lights are working because every so often lights die. And so a- after I've done all these things, I can actually begin filming. Mm-hmm. All right. You with me so far? With you so far. Any questions? I don't think so. No. I don't think so. All, all, all uh, dealt with in excruciating detail. Uh, <laughs> so um, I suppose before I discuss how I film, I think maybe uh, talking about what my equipment is might be a good idea. Because yep. if, pe- if people want to emulate what I do, they'll need to have uh, equipment for this. So I have a stills camera. Okay. Yeah. In particular, a Canon EOS 700D. This is where we're getting all that product placement money. Yeah, yeah. This is actually one big <laughs> giant advertisement. Um, camera nerds out there, like, th- you know the way you have the Mac PC divide? Yes. Yeah. You also have a Canon Nikon divide. Yeah. Where, you know, each group hates the other group. All is right? it pronounced Nikon? Uh, Nikon, Nikon, I don't know. I See, okay. I don't use them. I thought it was Nikon. Oh, I don't know. In any case, I think everyone knows what we're talking about. In case anyone doesn't know, those are two big camera brands. It is kind of like the Mac PC debate in that it kind of doesn't matter. You know, like it's it kind of, it, they're both fully functional cameras and they will do a good job. And yeah, there might be minute differences between the two, but essentially any camera that's a Canon or a Nikon is a good is a goer. Mm-hmm. Um, so and I, I can't stand that brand loyalty. I really can't. Like, you know why people go like, oh, he's a Mac user. I'm like, who cares? Like, <laughs> who cares what computer I use? Like, it makes no difference. <laughs> but anyhow, so I have a Canon mounted on a tripod, okay? Placed on a table facing downwards. Yeah. Okay, you with me on that? I'm with you. Okay. And onto the camera, I've attached a intervalometer. And what does that do? Right, so that's a little device that it tells the camera to take a picture every second. Every second? Or, or however long you want, but I have it set to every second. Wow. Yeah. Um, so that means that I don't have to like draw a little bit and then stop and then take a picture and draw a little bit and stop because that would be torturous. I can mm-hmm. just set the thing to play and then just keep drawing and it just ticks over with pictures. If you're going to do stop motion... Trust me, an intervalometer, although they're quite expensive, it's an absolute necessity. Don't attempt it without an intervalometer, seriously. And then I have two lights, and they are Nanguan CN600CSA lights. And what kind of lights are they? I'm assuming they're not just like desk lamps or something. No, no, they're uh, like filming lights. So they're like big LED oh, okay. panels. Kind Again, of like... like- Oh, LED panels, okay. Yeah, because I, I used to, before I decided to invest quite a lot of money in lights, I used to use uh, builder's lights. What are they? Like like lights from a building site. Oh, okay, like just like the kind of plug-in ones with sort of cage around them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, yeah, ones yeah. That, the ones that run on halogen bulbs. And oh my God, are those lights just the worst? <laughs> like, like they are 
like they are barely functional as lights. Mm-hmm. Okay, and not even for a filming perspective, just from a perspective of being a light. <laughs> like they just so irritate me because like they would heat up really hot and burn themselves out. And if you needed to replace the halogen bulb, if you touched the bulb with your fingers, like your bare skin, chances are that bulb wouldn't work. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you need to have like you need to have like rubber gloves to change a bulb. They're just the worst. Man, I was I was doing this I was doing this the other week, just use tissue. Use toilet paper. No, I know, but come on, like, like LED. <laughs> Do you know, like LED is so beautiful in comparison. Like, yeah. Why don't they make LED builders lights? You know, like, like surely they're cheaper. Bulbs don't die. You know, they have a nicer light. They don't heat up. Like it's mm. just, it just seems like that's the only way forward. And I used to act slightly embarrassingly uh, way back in the early days, like in the first maybe ten-ish videos. I used to have to record like minus a lot of clothing. Because it was just so warm. <laughs> like, I'm not even joking. Like, there's times there was literally like dripping sweat. And then when it hit summertime, and I had like, I had to record in the middle of the day or film in the middle of the day with these like glaring halogen bulbs. And then like, whatever, like 20 degree heat. And you're like, this is actually torture. <laughs> so I decided after that, I need to get proper lights. Uh, lights are very expensive. If you're going to start a YouTube channel on the, on the tight, I think builders lights are probably the best way to go, mm-hmm. even despite how annoying they are. All right, so so that so yeah. Again, just to reiterate, camera set on tripod, facing down, intervalometer hooked up, facing down onto a sheet of paper, intervalometer hooked up, and then two lights pointing at the sheet of paper. I'm not. I don't really think we tend to see your shadow. Sorry, I should move closer to the mic. I don't think we really tend to see the shadow of your arm while you're. Like when it appears on screen, is that because the like the two lights are bright enough that the shadow cast by one will be like eliminated by the other? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And they're coming in at kind of roughly forty-five degree angles. Okay. So they kind of balance out the shadow exactly. Yeah. So I guess you you cut a lot of the the pictures that are taken. If it's been taken one every second, you you would throw away the majority of that. Oh, you yeah, you've no idea. <laughs> So many pictures get uh, get cut. I mean, like I think an average video, like an average maybe maybe five to seven minute video, usually takes about maybe four or five thousand pictures, mm-hmm. um, and then a huge chunk of them get cut. Yeah, an absolutely massive chunk. All right, so we have the rig set up. All the things are checked. I have paper. I have markers. There's batteries and everything. It's all good. So then what I do really crucially as well, and I only learned this a few months ago, is I do white balance. Hugely important, right? And photographers everywhere are going to be like, well, duh, obviously white balance. But people who aren't photography heads, white balance is not really a thing that like we think about. Yeah. Um, but white balance is really, really important. Because remember we had this discussion before about why my videos are like yellow tinged and blue tinged. Yeah. This is before I white balanced. And now I white balance and now I've gotten the, the like the paper, the white of the paper, as close to white as I can get it. Cool. So that's really important. You want good colors and realistic colors, white balance. Also, if you don't white balance uh, and you film like a vlog, say, skin tones could come out all wrong which is just like death. Like that's automatic. The video doesn't go uploaded then. Um, so yeah, white balance. And then due to all the usual things like full manual settings, set aperture, uh, shutter speed, all the usual photography things, which I'm not going to get into because um, that could take an entire podcast as well. 
but the resources are out there on the internet to learn all that stuff reasonably Absolutely. competently, I assume. Yeah, like everything I do on the internet, I had little to no prior training. And I've all learned from reading stuff on the internet and buying books. So it, it, it's, it is all out there, definitely. Cool. And I encur- I'll put links to some, some sites and I encourage you to, uh, to check it out. Photography in general is a pretty cool thing. Being able to properly photograph something is just, I think, it's just a really cool skill to have. Mm-hmm. So um, we're definitely worth checking out. So then I begin to draw. So after all of this, you finally get to the actual drawing. <laughs> we get to the actual drawing part. Uh, also, uh, this this stage is usually where I throw on some podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this stage can be pretty long and can be pretty boring. Because I know what I'm going to draw already. There's no kind of creativity. So I need to have something to keep my mind occupied. So podcasts get thrown on. I'll throw a link to some decent podcasts as well in the show notes. It's all very self-explanatory. I just draw what I've already previously storyboarded. Um, I make minor edits as I go because sometimes things don't scale correctly. And once drawing is done, then it's kind of into Final Cut proper for editing. Mm -hmm. And so that's basically, it comes in a couple of steps. Basically, I take everything in and I sync up the pictures to the audio. Very simply, like. Then once that is done, that's kind of like my first draft. Then I close down Final Cut and I go into Photoshop and do any sort of Photoshopping that needs to be done. Wait, you Photoshop... Sorry, does Photoshop work with, with video as well then? Oh, well, no, because I'm working in stills. But would you not do the Photoshop stuff before putting the stills into Final Cut? Right, okay, yeah, yeah. So, so very often the Photoshop stuff is a reaction to what I've already done. Okay. All right, so I'd be like, oh, this doesn't quite work. Maybe I need to Photoshop in something here. Okay, so you kind of put stuff roughly together, see what needs Photoshopping, yeah. do the Photoshopping, and then go back to Final Cut? Then go back to Final Cut, okay. import the Photoshop stuff, and then put them on top of it. Mm-hmm. All right, and then I and then then all I do is I then I color correct, make sure all the colors are really nice, and do the little uh, like mastering things on top of that. And then in light of everything that has been done, like the the script, the editing, all this sort of thing, I then go and film myself talking the outro. Yeah. Okay, which can only be done at the very end of the process because there might be something, even despite scripting and having visuals that is still unclear, I need to make sure it's clear. So that happens afterwards. So yeah, and that involves writing a little mini script and all that sort of jazz. So once I film the outro, I take the outro in and again, do the same things really. Put mm-hmm. a, like a put color correct, edit it together. And then once everything is all in one place all edited and all done, I can finally export. Um, and so this usually is that, so everything I've just described, minus the scripting, is usually about a one to two day process. Okay. So once exported, and I export as a large file, because I'm going to, I compress it further. And once I've exported and compressed it, I take it to YouTube. And then the YouTube bit, this bit I hate. <laughs> because it's kind of like, you get this feeling that like once you've exported a file or a video, it's like done, you know? Yeah. And then you go to it's YouTube. It's out of your hands now. It's out of my hands. And you're like, oh, I'm finished. This is great. I could like take a break. And then you realize, oh, no, wait, I still have all of YouTube stuff to do. And there's a lot of YouTube stuff. Anyone who doesn't upload uh, won't realize this, but there's a lot of backdoor stuff you have to do. And um, like subtitles, you got to put your subtitles in. That's really important. 
You have um, to do those yourself. No, I, I upload the script. Okay. Um, but you have to like you have to tell it, you know, what script to do. You have to set the timings. You have to do it, it's yeah. not the most arduous process in the world, but it's a thing to do. Yeah, it's it sounds finicky, and you have to set the like the annotations and stuff on on the the screen as well, don't yeah, you? Yeah, the, the annotations. I'm not going to get into this because I could rant all day long. The annotations are really finicky. Mm. <laughs> like if you have a box, right? Say you've drawn a perfectly square box, right? Trying to get an annotation to align perfectly with that square box <laughs> is just about impossible. It's really, really hard. And to the point where I've just given up. It's just kind of, they, they get slapped on in the general area. Um, I'm not going to dedicate like half an hour trying to get annotations to work. But yeah, you go through and you put in annotations. Then you put in your cards, which is the, you know, the, the new eye icon on the top of the screen. No. Yeah, so there's this new icon, it's an eye, and it's it, it's basically an annotation that works on mobile devices. Huh. Because annotations never worked on mobile devices. Um, so that's really important. So anyone who's listening on mobile, uh, on a mobile device, will will need the links in the eye section. Okay. So I need to do that. Oh, like, to, a, like a letter eye? It's a letter eye. It's an eye encased in like a, a white circle. Okay, yeah, and no, I thought you meant like a like a ocular organ, like an ocular organ. Like, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, not not the not the like sack of liquid we call the eye. Okay, uh, the, 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 the letter I. Um. So yeah, and then you got to like tag, do all your like metadata, monetize, and things like that. And there's it's a good maybe half an hour to forty five minutes in YouTube trying to get everything correct. Right. Uh, which is kind of longer than I wish it was, but, you know, that's just the way it is. And then when everything's done, and everything's grand, and everything's uploaded, and there's no problems, I can hit the publish button. Finally. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. There's a lot of stuff going on. But uh, the publish button is my favorite button in the world, though. Publish. It's just beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. So then, yeah, then I publish, and then make sure to plug on, like, Facebook, uh, various subreddits, Twitter, and that sort of thing to get it out there. Because I've like I've discussed in the past, my channel is not very findable on YouTube. You know, world building is not something that one just searches. Yeah. Um, so it's really important for me after videos all done to like you know go and try and engage in as many different platforms as possible to try and get the video out there. And then 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 Bill, that is that is that is my process. That is how you make a video. That is how I make my video in excruciating detail. And um, if anyone in particular is looking to set up a YouTube channel and wants extra advice, go to the comments in, in the subreddit. I'll be more than happy to go into even more painful detail. <laughs> Welcome to the green room. The green room? The green room. Yeah, it's looking nice. Isn't it? I've decked it out in all, all shades of green I can get my hands on. The room I'm currently in is actually kind of green got kind of sort of a pale green wall yeah yeah be- because you're in the green room because man. i'm in the green room in the green room do you like the, do you know. like my emerald green chaise lounge no you garish don't, do you think it's garish <laughs> a bit too much green um I, I, maybe i'll come come to to like it in time you realize though that in the future when you're in the green room you're gonna have to wear green you could do it like in the wizard of oz book okay go on you know the emerald city i do in the book, it's actually, it's not green at all. It's 
how it works is the the wizard makes it so that everyone has to put on uh, green spectacles when they enter the city. And the excuse is that because otherwise you'd be blinded by like the dazzlingness of of how green everything is. I think given the garish layout of our green room, I think um, preventing eye damage will be good. Okay. I think we should proceed with green glasses. Excellent. Okay. So to explain for the listeners, we've decided to put the kind of what's going on in our life section at the end of the podcast now. Because... I was thinking maybe people don't want to hear that. Maybe people just want to hear stuff like the main topic and follow up and things. So we'll get to those first and then we'll end the show. And then we go into the green room and we have a sort of more informal chat about what's going on in our lives. So if you want to listen to that, you can keep listening. If you don't, you can stop after the main topic and you've kind of still got the meat of the podcast. Make sense? Makes a lot of sense. Cool. So how are you, man? I'm I'm pretty good, yeah. I'm... I've had a lazy couple of weeks. I had a, a pretty busy summer up until a few weeks ago. Yeah, Helsinki and all that. More or less taking it easy now. Yeah, I was I was in Helsinki and then uh, I was home for about a week and then I went down to Bantry, which is a town in the southwest of Ireland, in West Cork. Mm. And I was working, I was volunteering at a music festival there for the guts of two weeks. Cool. How was and the music festival? Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. I, I go every year. I attended for the first time in 2012. I had a piece played. Okay. And uh, I enjoyed it so much that I've gone back to volunteer there every year since. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. Um, And are you long back from Bantry? Um, It ended the fourth... The 4th of July was was the last last day of the Okay, so So you're... you're, Finished about two weeks. You're back a little bit, yeah. Yeah, so I've just been taking it pretty easy since then. Doing a little bit of work. uh, Reading a lot. Um, Oh, what you reading? Well, remember a few weeks ago we were discussing, uh, or sorry, a few episodes ago we were discussing Master and Commander. Yes. I've actually started reading the books. Oh, very good. That, that it's based on, which are uh, interesting. I've certain little things I don't like about how it's written, but the writing style, but great characters and great dialogue and great plots. And it's naval warfare in the Napoleonic era, so I'm already on board automatically, really. What, what's not to like, exactly. What's not to like. So overall, thumbs up so far, yeah? Uh, yeah, thumbs up. I've, I've heard that new beginners are advised to, to start with the third one, and I've just finished the second one. I've just read the first two. So what, uh, maybe did, they get even better from there. Do they not follow chronologically? They do follow chronologically, but people often say that the third one is where it starts to get really good, or it's a good starting point. And then you can go back and read the first two. I, I never subscribe to that idea. Yeah, I hate doing that as well. But uh, on the subject of reading, Bill, mm-hmm. um, I said in the podcast there that uh, it was my anniversary. Yeah. And the captain got me a very interesting book. Oh, yes. That I've yet to start reading, but I will probably start reading tonight. It is a book by Michael Adams, and it's called From Elvish to Klingon. Exploring oh. Invented Languages. Cool. Which is really cool. I thought I owned most of the kind of big language construction books. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one just, it was never on my radar. And uh, she bought this and it was an amazing buy. I was literally blown away. I was like, this is, because I don't like presents per se, because usually they're kind of crap. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, if you don't know, it was kind of like, oh, I got you, I got you this, like, these flowers. And I'm like, okay, but I don't need flowers in my life, you know? 
like I get that there's a nice sentiment behind the present, but the present itself usually for most people is a bit meh. But this one is literally spot on. It like it has something to do with my work. You know, it's of my interest. It's a great, uh, great present. So well, I'm nervous about giving you a Christmas present now. Ah no, Bill. Actually, no, you should be totally. <laughs> no, I joke. And uh, the also, it's really weird. Um, one of the chapters is about the Albed language from Final Fantasy X. Okay. Which I find really odd because, like, it's not a, like, very fleshed out language. It's not a fully realized language. Yeah, yeah not at all. It's just a cipher of English. So it'd be interesting to see what he has to say about it. Uh, and, mm. like, how one can have a detailed discussion about Albed. So that's, that's something I'm looking forward to. Maybe it will be a counterexample. Maybe he will be saying it's just a cipher. It could, could well be, could well be. But I was very surprised to see it. Like, because obviously I was expecting, you know, Tolkien's languages, Klingon, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But to see Albed, it was like, oh, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm up, I'm up for reading about this. Yeah, that sounds good. Keep, keep us informed. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure you'll tell us in the, in the next episode anyway. Definitely. And if I don't like it, I'll complain about it at length. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else have I been reading? Um... Well, so I, I got a Kindle for Christmas. Oh, very good. And the the great thing about about it is public domain books are so widely available online in ebook formats. Mm-hmm. So if the author has been dead for more than 75 years or whatever, then you can legally acquire their books. Okay. And what I've been doing, um, or what I, what I did a little bit while I was in Banshee and when I came back, was reading Conan the Barbarian stories. And they're yeah, they're pretty interesting. There, there's a there's a there's a big difference between what we think of as the the barbarian warrior archetype and how Conan is actually portrayed. Oh, really? Uh, enlighten us. How? Uh, okay. Well, the very first Conan story I think was called "The Phoenix and the Sword," um, the first one ever published. It starts off, and Conan's first appearance is doing paperwork. <laughs> no way. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. Because the the story, like the, the very first published story, is shortly after he's become the king of Aquilonia. He murdered the previous king, strangled him on the steps of the throne, and then became king himself. Okay. And so this story takes up a few months later, and he's like doing official work, you know, for the kingdom, because he's the king. I mean, he doing, has to do that. <laughs> doing the bureaucratic stuff. Brilliant. Um, and a lot of the other ones, I think the, the next one I read was... Um, the first, uh, th- these two I read a couple of years ago. The next one was The Tower of the Elephant, which is the first one chronologically that was written by the original author. Okay. And it's it's quite a classic story. You know, he, he fights his way up a necromancer's tower to steal a great jewel. Typical stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, but at the top of the tower, he encounters an alien who's got a, like an elephant head who's okay. trapped inside the gem. And like they discuss philosophy for a while. No way. Yeah. Like not not in like... You know, oh, well, this is what I think about Leibniz, but there's kind of a philosophical bent to their discussion. Uh, huh. And it's, you know, he's explicitly an alien rather than a monster. He's actually from another planet. That's really he is interesting. from space. And a lot of them, like, th- th- there's one I read, one really, really good one. Um, what was it called? I can't remember. <laughs> but he, he gets, he gets a, there's a conspiracy against him and there's a battle at the start. And the, the first thing he does is get knocked out and paralyzed. Oh, really? Yeah, so especially in, like, role-playing games, the thing is that, like, barbarians in, in like, Pathfinder and D, D&D, barbarians have good saves and they're resilient and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And the first thing he does in this story is 
you know, he fails a fortitude save and gets knocked out. <laughs> I love that he fails a fortitude save. <laughs> that's, that's what happens. <laughs> if we're looking at it in Pathfinder terms, that is what happens. So yeah, they're, they're, they're quite interesting. I can see where the barbarian archetype draws on Conan, but he doesn't fit it neatly in a lot of respects. That's really interesting. Like everything you just discussed there, they're not usually words that I would use when referring to the barbarian archetype. Like, like which? Like philosophy, yeah. paperwork, <laughs> you know, being paralyzed. <laughs> yeah, failing, <laughs> like, well, failing fortitude saves. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's really cool. I, I wouldn't have expected that at all. I always thought that, mm. that it was always that way. Like the big beefy guy goes over and like batters his way through everything to get to the conclusion of the story. I mean, he does a lot of that. Oh yeah, obviously. He's obviously <laughs> still a barbarian. Like, yeah. But he's also, he's really stealthy because there's loads of stories where he's a thief. When, when he was a young man, he was a thief. Huh. So he's he's like six foot six and three hundred pounds, and he like sneaks around the place and no one sees him. <laughs> they sound hilarious. And he runs away from stuff as well. Like there's times when where, when he encounters stuff, and he's like, "Nope, can't kill that. I'm out of here." <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. That's really cool. That's really glad that there's like a, it's it's a really fresh. I'm gonna say fresh take on barbarians, but obviously it's the original. Yeah. But it's really cool that the original is so kind of like diverse. That's really nice. Yeah. Oh, look, there's a lot of there's a lot of problems in the stories as well. Like the, for the most part, women are pretty useless. Um, because you know it was written in the 30s, and he was a real kind of manly dude, so he probably wasn't very smart about gender stuff. But you know, I, I, something something to be aware of when reading them. Don't 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 be expecting don't be expecting nuanced discussions of gender. <laughs> but I don't think any book from the 30s uh, or that era will be giving you nuanced discussions about gender. Not a lot of them. Not a lot of them. Yeah, I'm sure there's a few to break the mold, but the general trend, you know, is um, stick with the zeitgeist of that era. So that's really cool. That's, that's, that's genuinely very, very interesting, Bill. Yeah. So I have a story. Oh, yeah? Uh-huh. I, as I've mentioned numerous times, it was my anniversary, and I was staying over in the captain's house mm-hmm. for 10 days in July, I think. And one of those days, we had a small party. So kind of like close friends came came along. It was it was a gathering. It wasn't like a crazy party or anything. Um, I cooked dinner and then we all sat around and had drinks and talked afterwards. But a couple of interesting things uh, came up, right? One, yeah. one controversial, one not controversial. Which okay. would you like me to talk about first? Uh, non-controversial first. Non-controversial. Okay, so you know the way you and I like flags? Yeah. And you know the way not everyone likes flags? Uh, sure. I have found that to be completely false. I think within everyone is a a flag lover waiting to escape. <laughs> okay. Right? So, because uh, I can't remember how it happened, but the conversation drifted towards flags. And I was like, okay, the minute I smelled flags, I was like, I'm going with this. Uh, and we had like a, a long, really long discussion about flags. And it's amazing how everyone has an opinion and everyone is interested in flags once you get the discussion going. Like, it was really cool. And uh, we talked a lot about, like, good good flag design, bad flag design, why I think certain flags are, are good and certain ones are horrible. And people are genuinely interested in hearing the reasons and being directed towards brilliant flags and shocking flags. I was, I was like, pleasantly surprised. Are you sure it's not just the circles you move in? Oh, no, definitely not. <laughs> because some a lot of the people at, at that gathering were uh, people that I'm not close friends with. Okay, yeah. fair uh, There was myself and the captain. We were obviously close friends. And then one other mutual friend of ours. And the rest I kind of uh, loosely know. 
Okay. Um, so yeah, and uh, it's got, we, we established that the uh, Bangladesh flag um, is not one of the best flags in the world. Uh, Greenfield with a red circle? Yeah, Greenfield with a red circle. The problem being that the green and red are really clashy. And the red circle is just ever so slightly off center. It drives me mental. Is it actually? Yeah, it's just <laughs> Google it there, man. It's like it's just slightly left of center. And you're like, no, why didn't you put it in the center? Huh. Okay, I kind of see that. And the colors are really clashy. It's offset slightly, so it appears centered when the flag is flying. Oh, is that what they say? Well, according to that wonderful source, Wikipedia. <laughs> Still, just from what, like looking at it in books and mm. uh, online, I'm like, oh, oh God. And then we talked a little bit about the Czech flag because there's a Czech girl there. And she was very delighted to uh, hear that I really like the Czech flag. I think the Czech flag is a great flag. It's like a, a red triangle. Blue triangle towards- on the left. Yeah. And then I think a white field on top and a red field on bottom. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, I've just Googled it here, that's it. Yeah, it's, an, it's, a, it's a really nicely designed flag. Simple. Nice and simple. Three colours, does its job. Interesting point I found out, she told me, is that if the flag hangs vertically, they flip the horizontal colours. Are you with me here? I'm just trying to see, understand. Okay, so it's like you, you put the, the blue is hanging down from the top. The blue is hanging down from the top, yeah. Okay, and the white is towards the, the hoist. The, yeah, ex- exactly. Okay. Sorry, I was just trying to figure out how that was meaningful because you can look at it from, from both ends. But yeah, I understand now. But yeah. it's kind of cool that they mess with their flag that way, depending on orientation. Yeah. I didn't realize that that was a thing people did. And so then I, I showed everyone the hideous US city flags. Uh, Milwaukee. Like Provo and stuff. Provo. <laughs> Provo came up, yeah. Uh, Milwaukee came up. Um, I don't know the Milwaukee flag. Hold on. Google, Google Milwaukee. It's shocking. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. It's so bad, isn't it? There, There is a lot in that. And you know what the worst thing is? There what? is a little tiny flag in the middle of the flag. Oh, there is? Yeah, inside the cog. It's hilarious. Huh. Uh, so that one came up. And then, and then, a flag that I found out is officially the worst flag, the worst US city flag uh, voted upon by the North American Vexillological Association. Okay. Pocatella, Idaho. Hold on, is, is the copyright part of the flag? Oh, you ruined it. I was going to say, can you pick out one feature that is just hilarious? Is that and, it? Yeah, the TM is part of the and flag. And the TM. And oh. the TM and the copyright. It's hideous. Wow. And then, like, I'm, I am impressed. <laughs> it's so bad. And then, like the, uh, the what you call it, the like the impact font for like, yeah, like is it proud to be, proud to be, yeah, yeah. Oh, That's it's kind of an impact kind of font. It's yeah. just the worst. And so, loads of people at the gathering, like, they didn't realize that such crap flags existed, and it was they were they really enjoyed being shown these terrible flags. That's amazing. And then one last thing, and I promise I'll stop talking after this. Actually, no, I can't make that promise. Um, <laughs> the is the Czech girl uh, comes from a city called uh, Ostrava. Yeah. And she was saying that the symbol for her city, um, I think, used to be a horse and a flower. Okay. And they the city voted to change it. And they changed it to, wait for it, three exclamation marks. 
What? Yep. So what happens is every single municipal building in Ostrava has three exclamation marks after it. So you have like the bank with three exclamation marks, like, you know, the post office, three exclamation marks. So she was like, it took me a while to get used to. And once I got over the fact that every municipal building is shouting at me, I was okay with it, (laughs) which I thought was hilarious. That's bizarre. Isn't it? Uh, it's like it's, it's like Ostrava is super excited about everything. <laughs> it's kind of cute. <laughs> I, I, do you know what? I am actually not against that. <laughs> like, I, like having, if you had three exclamation marks on a flag, that's shocking, right? But making it a thing that like cities, like all the municipal buildings have little exclamation marks is kind of a fun little jokey thing. I think it's pretty cool. I'm not a big fan of text on flags in general. Oh, man, it's one of the rules. Like, uh, what is it? The quote is, if you have to write the name of the thing your flag is about, your symbolism has failed. (laughs) You know, Uh, there's a great uh, TED talk by Roman Mars. Have you seen this? No. Okay, Roman Mars runs a podcast called 99% Invisible. It's awesome. It's about design and how we think about design. Really, really, really good. He did a TED talk on flags. And he goes through terrible flags and what makes them terrible. And he goes through all the rules. And one of the rules, like I said, is never put text on a flag. Which Pocatello, Idaho, just didn't care about. <laughs> oh, oh my no. What about, like, the flag of Amsterdam? The, he brings up the flag of Amsterdam in his talk. What are your opinions on the flag of Amsterdam? It's not really text. It's just, it's just three X's. Like, it's not really a... There's no textual information there, really. Yeah, and, and do you think the flag is a good good flag? It's fine. I think it's a medium. I think it's a great flag. Yeah, because <laughs> I just it just looks really badass, mm. like really piratey, you know. <laughs> uh, for the listeners, again, I'll link in the show notes all this. But the Amsterdam flag, correct me if I'm wrong here, Bill, is a a red flag with a black stripe running through the middle, horizontally. Horizontally. And with three white X's in the black stripe. Yeah? Yeah. 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 And I just think it looks really cool. And your man, Roman Mars, agrees with me. He's, well, <laughs> he agrees with Edgar, uh, but he was like, it's just a badass flag. And I think it's really cool. It's fun- funny you mentioned the, the pirate flag because there there's a lot of pirate flags. Mm. Um, and different captains had their own different flags. There was one which it was like a, a skeleton holding a spear in one hand and a chalice in the other and he's like stabbing at a heart or something that sounds like it's probably a shocking flag it's it's not great okay I think the thing about the, the skull and crossbones is actually reasonably true what's think, what do you mean is reasonably I, true I think, I think like people did actually use the the, the Jolly Roger can I ask I, a question the Jolly Roger good or bad flag it's a pretty good flag I think it's a terrible flag it's got, it's got a lot it's got a lot of like cultural weight behind it at this stage as well yeah obviously so. but I think from an aesthetic point of view uh, the like the skull and crossbones is too it's too finicky and that's actually interesting because this is what I was going to say I saw a picture somewhere on, on the internet reasonably recently like in the last year or so of a preserved like actual pirate black flag from, oh wow pirate ship it's in, it's in a museum somewhere and it was it was actually very nicely made and I kind of thought that it would be sort of roughly stitched like an approximation of a skull and crossbones because they're pirates you know they're not going to be 
doing precise needlework. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it was actually it was actually really nicely crafted, and and then I was thinking, well, I suppose they're pirates. Like, why wouldn't like I'm sure one of them was a tailor at some stage. I'm sure some pirate crews had tailors. Yeah, and especially because at times um, pirates were often from the navy, um, and then they just like went all, ran away and became pirates. Hmm. And the navy used to press gang people. So you'd have a huge variety of people in in the British Navy from a variety of different backgrounds. And I'm sure other countries were the same. Yeah, definitely. And I think as well, like, it, there's there's pride in a flag. Hmm. You know, so if you're going to make a flag, you're going to want to make it really good. Well, yeah. I say this, but again, pocket out of Idaho. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah. Just the fact is that the trademark symbol and the copyright on it is absolutely brilliant. Uh, for, the, for the listeners that don't go into the show notes, okay... Just this once, make an exception and go into the show notes. and Or, or just Google it. Or just, yeah, or even just Google it. Pocketella, Idaho. It just, it's just brilliant. It defies belief. <laughs> but anyhow, the, uh, yeah, the Jolly Roger. I think, yeah, culturally, it's an amazing flag. But mm-hmm. aesthetically, I think it falls under the sort of bad flag category. What um, do you think is the worst flag? The worst flag you've ever come across? Would you say Pocketello? Mm. Um, I can. Th- uh, it's hard. Provo or Pocatello? Yeah, Pocatello's up there. It's very bad. Have you got a counter example? Have you got something that's really shocking? I'm gonna say the flag of Venice. The f- I, I don't know. I don't know this. Hold on. Give me a second here. The flag of Venice. The, now there's various versions of it. There's one. I, I'm not sure exactly what the the how to put them together in like historical order but there's one incredibly terrible flag of Venice okay do you want to describe I'm looking at all the flags of Venice now do you want to describe uh, the one that you think is shocking okay so the the centerpiece of this is a winged lion right with 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 a yellow halo on a blue background um, and on some standing on some ground <laughs> and he has one paw on an open book which reads Pax Ivan Tibigaili Marsta Tsimaeus. Okay. Yeah. So we're we're quite busy here. There's a lot. Ju- there's a lot already. Yeah. And this has a really sort of baroque or arabesque border around it, in in sort of I don't know what color that is. Kind of crimson and gold, and a little bit of dark blue detailing. <laughs> yeah. Oh. A really really elaborately designed border, and then to the right of that there are six panels similar. to you know, with horizontal panels uh, stacked one above each other um, in similar design to this sort of Baroque border. And there are six, no, hold on, there's seven of them. And there are seven little flags or coats of arms at the at the far end. It is just the busiest, most bizarre <laughs> thing. Like, it's there's just so much here. I... What am I supposed to be looking at? <laughs> I, okay, so I Googled this flag, right? I right. can't quite see one that has coat of arms at the far side. But that being said, just about every single picture here is ridiculously garish. <laughs> and, and I see some pictures here of the Venice flag. It's it's um it's frayed. The 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 right side, the p- p- bit not in the hoist is like cut into little strips. Right. That's also Weird. hideous. That's very strange. Yeah, because like they they like flail really easily, mm. like they can un- unravel really easily. Like that the the reason why all flags are like roughly rectangular or some square is that they won't tear very easily. Mm. Um, and and the Venice flag just just like no nah, no nah, screw you good conventions. 
if if you if you look at the flag for the the flag of Veneto, sorry, maybe this is actually a sub region near Venice or something. Oh no, it's 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 the the province that that Venice is in. It's it's that flag, the flag of Veneto, and it was based on an old Republic of Venice flag. That's what's going on. Okay, hold on. So the region of Veneto. Google flag of Veneto, you'll find the one I'm talking about. Oh boy, it's worse. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> oh like, god. It's, it's, got, it's got so much detail. Like even like the picture itself, there's like specific detail to the landscape. There's a gradient in the sky. In the oh my that. god. There's a there's text in the book. In like really, really small. And then there's seven coats of arms. There... Isn't it amazing? I don't have any words. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it amazing? That is awesome. Listeners, definitely Google this. This is the the Veneto flag. Veneto? Yeah. V-E-N-E-T-O. We'll throw it in the uh, show notes as well. If you want to have a good old giggle to yourself, uh, go check this out. I think that might be a contender for Pocatello, Idaho. (laughs) But I think the the thing that trumps, that makes uh, Pocatello, Idaho just that little bit worse, is that TM. No, for me it's the copyright because it was like the, it looks like an ad or something. It was oh, it's just the yeah, worst. I love it. Like I don't understand how how I how does this pass? Like, can you copyright a flag? Well, it's a work of art, isn't it? Is it? I guess. And I mean, like, is isn't it pro- is a property of the um, like the county or the city? But I no, that, that's public property then. So I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's just. Oh, it's just awful. So that makes me think of two things. Go for it. Um, when I was in Finland, I, as I was talking about in the last podcast, I went to the fortress Swaminlina on the islands outside the, outside the city. Yeah, and I came across a flag. I think it was like the. I think it's the military flag or the naval flag or something. And Wikipedia is also saying it's the state flag, so it's used for various purposes. Okay, and from a distance, it looks. And if, if you look at like a small thumbnail of it online, it looks like the Finnish flag, but in the center where the or in the center of the cross where the where the, the bars all meet, it looks like the Google Plus logo. <laughs> okay, right. What, what what am I googling? Tell, tell me what to Google. State flag of Finland, I guess. State. Okay, hold on. No, it looks like the Google Plus logo. Wait, no. Okay, describe what you're seeing. The most like uh, numerous flag here is um, a white background. Yeah. Blue cross superimposed on the white background. Yeah. Where the cross meets, there's like a red crest. Yeah. Does that look like the Google Plus logo? The Google Plus logo is a red box with a white G and a white plus. From a distance, like when you can't see a flag clearly in in real life, that looks really similar. Oh, yeah, it does. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't know because I don't use Google Plus. Google Plus just seems like a train wreck to me. But yeah, it's... It's not the worst, Bill. No, no, it's not a bad flag. I just thought it was funny. Favourite flag of all time? Uh, oh, I don't know. Oh, well, I was going to give you mine. Oh, okay, go for the, it. The former flag of Libya. It's just green. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'm sorry, I'm joking. That's obviously shocking. <laughs> like, it's just so irrelevant. Oh, It's a green I'm- cross and a green background. The green cross and a green background? Oh, first... <laughs> I had to think about it there. I was like, what? That's Nordic the- Libya. <laughs> Nordic Libya. Anyhow, so that was, that that flag discussion went on longer than I thought it would, um, to be fair. Um, so, listeners, I would like to, before we formally finish uh, the show, I'd like to really apologise for uh, 90% of what I said. 
Uh, <laughs> it's a bit long-winded. Uh, if you make if you made it through this, um, great. Thank you so much. I'll see you next time. All right. <laughs> Edgar out. Edgar out. Oh, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, what's his face? What's his name? Jacob Stitch Duran. Are you Googling him? I am. Stitch Duran? Oh my god, it's Edward James Almos! Isn't it? <laughs> oh my god, that's brilliant. I remember when I started watching it. Oh, let's get those birds in the sky, Bill. <laughs> <laughs>